This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. A young man in Utah today jumped off of a cliff. Yes, he jumped off of a cliff with a parachute. It's called base jumping. And indeed, he was well confident, absolutely confident that his chute would open and everything would be wonderful, everything would be cool, and he would be a celebrity. Unfortunately, a heavy gust of wind caught that parachute and drove him right against a 400-foot cliff, caught on the cliff and left him stranded, hanging from the cliff. If it were not for the compassionate actions of a number of those who valiantly sought to rescue him, he would not have made it. But they rescued him before he lost his life. They took compassion on that man. Today on Viewpoint, we want to talk about this matter of compassion because that is really, when you think about it, the very heart of the Christmas story. The whole idea of Christmas, the whole giving God the Father, giving of his only begotten Son in the fullness of time as a tremendous compassionate act of the creator of the universe, seeing that we were made in the flesh, human made in the image of God, but not God, and having walked in frailty and humanity and in the flesh, failed, sinned, and were subject to a death penalty without someone, somewhere, acting with compassion. And so God, in the fullness of time, sent forth his only begotten Son, full of grace and truth, to take action, compassionate action, to demonstrate the Word made flesh. God's Word, his hope, his purposes, his salvation made flesh. That you and I might have hope to escape the death penalty that was upon all humankind because of sin. Well, today on Viewpoint, though, we're going to take a look at how vastly that issue continues to haunt us, continues to confront us. And I hope you'll stay tuned, friends, because what we talk about today on Viewpoint is going to touch everyone's heart life, and mind. Everyone. There is no way that this program today cannot touch you because you and I live in the midst of a wicked and sinful planet of humankind just like us where all of us, the Bible says, have sinned and come short of the glory of God for we're all under a death penalty. Unless. Unless we receive and respond to the compassion that God the Father extended to us through Jesus Christ. But there are many issues, many life issues that we are facing as we speak. That young man there in Utah was responded to with compassion. 
What if there had been no one there to witness this deadly jump? He probably would not have survived. But there were those who reached out and took risk themselves to take compassion. Notice they didn't just have feelings of compassion. Compassion itself is not a feeling, it's an action. And that's why over and over again in the Bible, it says Jesus looked at their situation and took compassion. In other words, he acted. He did something. He acted in response to something that was not right, something that was not holy, something that perhaps was dangerous. He responded with compassion. Someone has said that actually in this world in which we live today, a post-Christian world, that compassion may be one of the greatest witness tools that we have to touch an unbelieving planet. Well, I would agree with that. I think hospitality is one of those. But there are many issues that cannot be that simply resolved and bring us into confrontation with the word compassion. And so I welcome you to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Myers. Conversation is always with ever-increasing conviction. Talk that transforms. And you have to have a measure of conviction in order to understand and implement biblical compassion. You just do. Because it's not a matter of feelings. Feelings are very fickle. Have you noticed that? One minute you can feel this way, and another minute you can feel almost just the opposite. Feelings are very deceptive. So compassion doesn't really have very much to do with feelings. It has to do with a human response to the human frailty of others. A human response, because we're made in the image of God, to the human frailty of others. Well, how is that frailty manifested? Well, Today, there were two things other than the base jumper in Utah that struck my attention. One had to do with an article that came from a an author by the name of Jim Dennison. His article said, Sacrificial compassion is our primary medium of witnessing to a post-Christian culture. And he's right. But then he gave an illustration that has made it all over the news just in the last couple of days. It has to do with a Christian singer. Her name is Amy Grant. She will become, tonight, the first contemporary Christian music star to be recognized at the Kennedy Center Honors. It's a distinction, probably well-deserved. Her total career album sales have exceeded 30 million with over 1 billion global streams. She's received six Grammy Awards, 26 Dove Awards, including four Artist of the Year Awards. Wow, that's quite something. So, here's the problem. She's also in the news today for a less positive reason. She told the Washington Post that she and her husband, Vince Gill, are planning to host her niece's same-sex wedding at their farm, which will be her family's First Bride and Bride Nuptials. She explained, quote, 
honestly, from a faith perspective, I do always say, Jesus, you just narrowed it down to two things, love God and love each other. According to Amy Grant, we are to love each other, a biblical command that, in her view, includes same-sex marriage. Her position is more or less relevant to you, depending on whether, like her, you care for someone engaged in same-sexual relationships. But, as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, whatever affects one directly affects all of us indirectly. So where does this go? Stay tuned, friends, because you're about to face one of the most difficult subjects that Christians in our world today are facing. Not just Christians, human beings made in the image of God that are being told that compassion is something other than what it is. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. Compassion requires that we see others through the eyes of Christ. Compassion requires that we, that you, that I, see others through Christ's eyes. I just made that note on the piece of paper here in front of me, here on the broadcast desk, because I think it's really simply profound, and it is true. So let's go back to Amy Grant and her situation. It's a perplexing situation for most of us because, on the one hand, we want to stand for biblical truth. God has spoken on a vast array of issues as to how he would have us to live. He's the creator, and therefore, if the creator, he has the right to tell us what is best and what is not what is approved by him, and what is not. If we don't believe that he's the creator and we're an evolutionist, then we can do whatever the animals will allow us to do. We just become human animals. But we're not human animals. We're made in the image of God, which brings us to a completely different standard, and it also brings us to a level of compassion that is actually demanded of true followers of Jesus Christ. But as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, whatever affects one directly affects all of us indirectly. So the writer of this article says, I wonder, would Amy Grant extend her defense of her niece's same-sex wedding to include polygamy? Popular support for this practice has increased fourfold just in the last 10 years and a half. Well, what about genetic sexual attraction, otherwise known as incest? A Virginia University professor was placed on administrative leave just last year for insisting that it isn't necessarily immoral for adults to be sexually involved with children. So if, as Amy Grant says, If love is love, 
as we so often hear these days, where do we draw the line? How many innocent people will this unbiblical ethic continue to harm? And what will happen to the religious freedom of those who uphold biblical sexuality against the rising tide of rejecting it? Sacrificial compassion is our primary medium of witnessing to a post-Christian skeptical uh, culture. I agree with that. But on what terms? Jesus' compassion for tax collectors, Samaritans, and lepers earned him only the opprobrium of Jewish society. His crucifixion was the most horrific form of execution ever devised. St. Augustine, though, reminded us of the significance of such grace or compassion. You would have suffered eternal death had it not been born in time. Neither would you have been freed from sinful flesh had he not taken on himself the likeness of sinful flesh. You would have suffered everlasting unhappiness had it not been for this mercy. You would never have returned to life had he not shared your death. You would have been lost if he had not hastened your aid. You would have perished had he not come. And then Augustine asked, what greater compassion could God have made to dawn on us than to make us, to make his only son become the son of man so that the son of man might in turn become a son of God? Excellent point. So I ask you, obviously, I don't even have to ask you, because the questions are implicit in the article. How should we respond in situations such as that encountered by Amy Grant? What should we do? How should we respond as followers of Jesus Christ in situations where we are asked or under circumstances socially compelled, so to speak, to seemingly approve, for instance, same-sex relationships? Or how about polygamy? How about pederasty? How about transgenderism? How about murder because it seems compassionate? Under the circumstances, of course. Where do we draw the line? Are there lines to be drawn, or is the problem that we don't really understand what compassion is? I personally think that's the problem, and as I encountered these issues here today, I thought, you know, we really need to talk about this because this is touching every single one of us. Whether it's in our neighborhoods, whether it's in our families, in our churches, it's everywhere. Also today, I received another communication from one of our listeners, a longtime listener, says, recently the Lord has impressed on my heart the importance of the sanctity of marriage, and the matter of divorce and remarriage has come back to the forefront of my mind. My family has had massive personal experience with this subject, but now it's back center stage. Well, here's the problem. The writer says, or the listener says, I recently brought this subject up to a pastor at my church and have been met with heavy disagreement 
and what I would view as loopholes searching to validate what I believe Scripture to clearly okay uh, or, or rule out as sin. So I reached out to the pastor again with Scripture and had been met with resistance. Please intercede for me and my church and the leadership. How many letters have I received like this over the past 27 and a half years here on Viewpoint? I couldn't count them. This is an issue, friends, that is tearing up the Christian community in our country and around the world. It's tearing up the very authenticity of the church of Jesus Christ. It's become the church of human compassion rather than Christ's compassion. You say, there's a difference between human compassion and Christ's compassion? Well, yes, as to how we define it or view it. You see, viewpoint does determine destiny. Our viewpoint is critically important. Do we share God's viewpoint or do we make up our own? Is our viewpoint dictated by the culture and its drift, the feelings of the moment, or is our viewpoint solidified upon the authority of the Word of God? We have to make a decision. And unfortunately, most Christians are making the decision to agree with the culture rather than Christ. Now, if we agree with the culture rather than Christ, are we not, as the Apostle Paul said, actually crucifying the Lord of glory again? Are we not disagreeing with his viewpoint, the very Son of God who gave us his understanding? For instance, he told us, Several times in the New Testament, he said, whoever divorces their spouse causes them to commit adultery. And whoever marries the one that's so divorced commits adultery. So what do you say? He had this confrontation with the religious leaders of his day, the Sanhedrin, the 71 elders of Israel. He had this conversation with them. It was not a pretty picture because they didn't want to agree. So they wanted to look for loopholes. They wanted to find some other way to appear compassionate either to someone else or to themselves in their own flesh. You see, oftentimes the compassion that we want to show is not to somebody else, it's to ourselves. Because we want to do what we want to do. If we feel a certain way, we want to fulfill our feelings. No matter what God might have said, we want to do what we want to do. It's kind of like what Frank Sinatra once said, I'll do it my way. Very famous song, right? I'll do it my way. It's become the American anthem. Even within our churches. And it doesn't matter whether they're mainline churches, uh, more even more liberal than that, uh, evangelical churches, fundamentalist churches, the issue continues to be the same, and it's deepening. What does compassion mean? mean? How should we look at this issue? And I'm not coming to you today to discuss this in what some might call a legalistic way. What we're trying to do is somehow embrace the mind and the heart of Christ. And we can do that if we want to. In fact, the Apostle Paul told us that we have the mind of Christ. Now, what are we going to do with it? 
You see, we're at war. The war is between the mind of Christ and the mind of the culture. That's called spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. So, how do we handle, how do we deal with that? In the second half of the program, I'm going to go through a whole lot of different uh, thoughts concerning what compassion is, what mercy is, and how we respond to these kinds of issues. But for this moment, before we head into the next break, the Apostle Paul spoke to us about the nature of spiritual warfare. He said the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Strongholds? Yeah. Strongholds are the ways of thinking of the world, the ways of thinking of the culture that are constantly in conflict with the ways of God and of his son, Jesus Christ. So he says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly, but are mighty through God to the pulling down of those kinds of strongholds, casting down imaginations or reasonings and thoughts and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God were to bring every one of our thoughts into captivity to the obedience of Christ, not into captivity to the obedience to the culture, not in captivity to the obedience of somebody else's expectations, or even a pastor's expectations, or even a court's expectations, or even the president's expectations. No, we only have one to whom we're to bring our thoughts into captivity, and that is the expectations of Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son of God, full of both grace and truth. Now, the problem with our thinking is, and it's increasingly this way, is that people want to see Jesus as the Son of God full of grace, but not full of truth. Because we just don't very much like truth because it's perceived as legalism. It's Well, it's just too tight. No, I want to have some freedom. I, I want to have some, some liberty to move around and to think what I want to think and do what I want to do. And if it fits in with what the rest of the Bible says, great. Otherwise, I'll just accept what my feelings or the culture dictates. That's the thinking, isn't it? Which means we're caught in a web of deception. Unbelievable deception. And we're the agents of self-deception. So Jesus' brother, James, said, Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Deceiving your own selves. Hmm. He was talking to professing Christians. Deceiving your own selves. And Jesus, as you know, right there on the Mount of Olives, excuse me, uh, yeah, on the Mount of Olives, two days before his crucifixion, his disciples asked him what would be the sign of his coming and the end of the age. And he said, take heed that no man deceive you. That was foremost on Jesus' mind and heart. Deception. Because he knew that in these end times, just before his second coming, the character and nature of deception would be so great and so seductive that the majority of the people on the planet would be deceived. And they would be engines of self-deception and would be subject to the seduction of 
the ways of the time. So, before we go further, let me just make available to you my book, Seduction of the Saints, How to Stay Pure in a World of Deception. If you want to find something that will help us to navigate these very difficult times, that's the book, Seduction of the Saints, How to Stay Pure in a World of Deception. And it's everywhere. It comes from the government. It comes from the medical association. That's what the whole uh, vaccine issue is all about. And more and more, we're finding how not only have we been deceived tacitly, we've been deceived directly and intentionally. And most have succumbed. Most were seduced by the deception. Get a copy of the book, Seduction of the Saints. It's an $18 book, yours for $15. It's on our website, saveus.org, saveus.org. Call us 1-800-SAVE-USA. Compassion. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. SaveUS.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at SaveUS.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, SaveUS.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, SaveUS.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived. Save America Ministries website at SaveUS.org. Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer. Viewpoint always determines destiny. There are no neutral viewpoints ever. None of our viewpoints are neutral. And they all have consequences, some larger than others. The viewpoint of the young man that jumped off the cliff in Utah, even though he had a parachute, he had to depend upon that parachute as much as you would ever depend upon God. He had to depend upon that, and it failed him. The winds of life blew him and his parachute against the rocks of Utah and left him stranded, hanging, suspended from the rock. If it were not from for kind people, compassionate people who saw his dilemma, did not necessarily approve of what he did, but witnessed his dilemma, acted to deliver him insofar as possible from the consequences of his errant decision his dangerous decision, his viewpoint to jump from a cliff. Now, many of us, in one way or another, have figuratively tried to jump from cliffs. It's true. Figuratively tried to jump from cliffs. Let me give you an illustration. I practiced law for 20 years as a trial lawyer. 40% of my practice was in the area of family law in the largest family law court in the nation, the Los Angeles Superior Court System, consisting of nine courts over a vast area of Southern California. I'll tell you, 80% of my clients came from the broader body of Christ. 80% of them. 
You say, how is that possible? Well, because they were human beings. And they weren't living according to the word, the will, and the ways of God, notwithstanding the fact that they went to church and claimed to be Christians. So, they ended up in situations where they had a will to divorce. To do exactly what God said not to do. Jesus, or God the Father said, I hate divorce. But in our churches today, we've come to the place where we don't hate divorce because we think that to hate divorce is to hate people. No, it's not the same thing. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Divorce, from God's viewpoint, is evil because it's contrary to his word, his will, and his ways. But when we as human beings, fragile, fleshly human beings, yield to the temptation to do that which God has said we should not do, it's almost as if we're deciding to jump from the cliff and hope for survival. It's unbelievable. I've watched it happen for so many years now, first 20 years as a trial lawyer, and then the past 30 years as a pastor, as a broadcaster, from coast to coast, I've witnessed it all. I've seen the underbelly of the body of Christ, and it's not pretty. The pain is immense, and I have tremendous, what should we say, compassion for those people. I do. The pain is immense. Families are broken up into smithereens. How many times have I witnessed children there in the marbled corridors of the the, uh, central Los Angeles Superior Court, right down there in the heart of Los Angeles, walking down those corridors, coming out of a counseling office, screaming, Mommy, no, no, Daddy, no! The world says it's compassion to approve the divorce. What would you say? Would those children say it was compassionate? No. So why do we say it's compassionate? Because we want to give people the freedom to do it, because we think, well, maybe I'll be in that situation someday, and therefore I want to have the freedom to do what God says he hates, because I want to do it. You see... This whole issue of compassion is is far more complex in one, in one sense than we want to believe that it is. Because if we don't truly have biblical compassion, we can actually, in the so-called exercise of compassion, cause far more damage, far more pain that echoes out through the, de- the, uh, the family, through the generations that would never have happened if we didn't exercise false compassion. So, compassion requires that we see things through Christ's eyes. Now, before we go further in this, I want to uh, just bring out on the table one of the most frequently quoted passages in the Bible dealing with Jesus and how he dealt with sin. 
And people use this, pastors will use this, uh, other Christians, even people who are not Christians, know about this passage, and they will always use it to try to slap you in the face and say, no, you don't know what you're talking about. Okay, so here we are. The Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the so-called righteous priests, brought to Jesus a woman caught in adultery, red-handed. They wanted to see what Jesus was going to do. Was he going to keep the law, the Torah, as it applied to someone absolutely guilty of adultery? Or would he try to skirt the issue? Would he have false compassion? They wanted to find out what Jesus would do. So, as the story goes, the account goes, uh, Jesus bent over and began to, he didn't even talk, he bent over and began to write in the sand or in the dirt. We don't know what he wrote. But one by one, one by one, these accusers began to leave. So we have to believe that what he was doing was revealing the sin of their own lives. And if it had come out publicly, it would not have been a pretty picture for them. So in one sense, he was being compassionate upon them by privately revealing to them their own wickedness that was had brought upon them great uh, repudiation by their own people. Eventually, he turned to the woman and he said, Woman, where are your accusers? And she said, uh, There are none. They're all gone. So Jesus responded with these words, Neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. So here's what people do. See, Jesus overlooked her adultery. He didn't hold her to account for her adultery. And so he was compassionate. And he just let her go in her adultery. No, he did not. That's not at all what happened there. What happened there is that the law that these religious leaders were relying upon required that there be two or three witnesses because she was under a death penalty. But all the witnesses left. So under the law, Jesus could not have brought judgment upon her as a man because it would not have been lawful for him to do so. So here's what he said to the woman. Since your accusers have left, and there is no witness against you, neither do I accuse you. But he didn't stop there. He said, go and sin no more. Now, when he did that, He was exercising real biblical compassion. He was acting under the law. He did not attempt to violate the law or usurp man's authority. But neither did he let the woman skate as if somehow 
she was not guilty as sin and entitled to a death penalty. What he basically said to the woman, you know and I know that you're guilty of sin and we're under a death penalty. Now the witnesses are gone. Aren't you grateful? Now you, you know you're guilty of sin. Now go and sin no more. In other words, repent. True compassion always requires repentance. Always. Because compassion is an action. It's not a feeling. Compassion is an action. Whenever the word compassion is used with Jesus, it says he took compassion. What does that mean? He acted in response to a situation not to approve the wrong or the sin, but to actually bring correction that would provide hope for the future. He always did something to remedy the problem. Compassion does not approve sin. Never, ever, ever, or it would be contrary to Christ. Christ never approved sin. He came to save us from our sin, not to approve it. So compassion does not approve humanity, but rather affirms humanity, calling for corrective action in the name of Christ. Let me repeat that. Compassion does not approve our humanity, but rather affirms our humanity, calling for corrective action that brings us into relationship, restored relationship with God and with one another. So when Amy Grant says, well, we're supposed to love God and love each other, that's true. But what does it mean to love God? This is the love of God, said the Apostle John, that you do, you do his commandments and they're not grievous. How do we love one another? We love one another by doing God's will toward them. Hmm. Interesting. We'll be back. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. Today we're dealing with the subject of compassion. What does compassion require? What is compassion anyway? 
Does it approve what others are doing to make them feel more welcome in doing what they should, what they want to do, no matter what God's viewpoint on it is? That's what Amy Grant said as a professing Christian. So she and her husband decided to affirm her daughter, who claims to be a lesbian and is now marrying a female, and welcomed them to do their nuptials on the Amy Grant Vince Gill farm. And she justified it on the basis, well, God, we're supposed to love God and we're supposed to love one another. That's very simple. So to love one another means to basically, by implicitly approving what they do to make them feel better. No. Jesus never did that. Not once. The apostles never did that. Not once. So why do our pastors do that today? Because they're under the lordship of the culture rather than Christ. And it's happened gradually over time. It began largely with the sexual sexual revolution in the 1960s. Then into the 1970s, with the God is love movement that rejected the God of truth. And then the seeker-sensitive movement that began to cut away all of the keen edges of truth and how we should live from God's viewpoint. And that's where we are today. It didn't happen overnight. It's happened over the past, uh, well, since my wife and I were married in 1966. We watched it happen from California to Richmond, Virginia. Compassion does not condone or approve. Neither does it condemn. Jesus did not condone the woman caught in adultery. Neither did he condemn her. What did he do? He responded with truth that was tempered by mercy. He responded with truth. In other words, she was a sinner. She knew it. He knew it. Everybody knew it. She was entitled to a death penalty because she was an adulterer. He responded with truth, but he tempered the truth with mercy, saying, okay, you're guilty of sin. You should be under a death penalty. Now, go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. In other words, lest you repeat the theme again where there will be no mercy and no compassion. So mercy seeks to remedy the problem while not approving or disregarding the perversion of sin and its unrighteous and dangerous choices. So how do you remedy a problem where a person, for instance, is uh, uh, going to divorce their spouse? You have to point out what God says about divorce. He hates it. So if God hates it, then what are you going to do about it? Do you love God? The religious leaders of Jesus' days came to him and said, well, didn't Moses say that we could divorce our spouses for any reason? Jesus said, oh, come on, guys. He said, you know that from the beginning it was not so. Why did Moses give you that law, the law of men to do that? Because of the hardness of your heart. So you want to plead hardness of heart with God? 
Do you really think that you're entitled to compassion from God if you plead hardness of heart? Come on. You see, this is about the heart. No wonder Jeremiah said the heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can know it? We're finding this true everywhere. We're finding it true. It's completely undermining the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ in our churches, in our country, in our courts, in our schools, in our government, everywhere. Completely pulling the rug out from under an entire nation and the entire Western world, by the way. You see, mercy seeks to remedy the problem, but not approving or disregarding the perversion of the sin and its unrighteous and dangerous choices. Do you know why we need mercy? There's only one reason why we need mercy. And that's because we're guilty. <laughs> I mean, we, you know, if, if, if somebody is convicted in the law of man and stands before the court and refuses to confess, do you think the judge is going to be prone to extend mercy to that person? No way. Mercy is only a possibility in the face of admission of guilt. So what have we done? We played games with words, just like the culture is. So we replace the word mercy with the word grace. Grace is a real word, but it doesn't mean mercy. Grace is God's uh, unmerited favor that enables or equips you to do his will. Jesus had to rely upon the grace of the Father in order to fulfill the will of the Father, which is why he was sent to do the Father's will. Then he said, now, I'm leaving, I'm ascending back to the Father. As the Father sent me, even so I send you. Now you do the Father's will, and you need his grace to do it. That's not mercy. Why is it that we don't use the word mercy anymore? Because we don't like the fact that we're guilty. We don't want to admit it. So we just say, I made a mistake. You see a problem? If you just say you made a mistake, then where is the place for mercy? And where is the place for legitimate compassion? You're just ready to go out and do it again. Compassion never provides cover or excuse for human frailty or the flesh. Never. But instead, it provides care and correction to redirect the person's course. That's what compassion does. Compassion acts to correct the problem. It doesn't provide excuse. That's not compassion. It's, it doesn't provide cover for somebody doing and living unrighteously. Compassion never approves or affirms sinful behavior, but instead applies the blood of Christ for healing a repentant heart. That's why we need to be, be repent. That's why Jesus 
came saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the message of the gospel. It gave us hope. It was compassion. God's compassion that sent forth in the fullness of time, his only begotten son, that you and I might have the hope of salvation if, if we would confess our sin and repent of it. In other words, turn from it. He would be faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the gospel, friends. That's true compassion. Compassion says confess, then repent, and go and sin no more. That's what compassion says. So, now, every one of us from time to time is caught in a situation where we are put in a a dilemma. We feel it's a, a terrible dilemma, like Amy Grant, who now has a lesbian daughter who is getting married to a female, a situation that God actually hates and considers an abomination as set forth in the scripture. So what is Amy Grant as a purported Christian woman going to do? She chose to affirm her daughter in her earthly sin to make her feel better, thinking it was an act of genuine love, rather than to affirm the love of Christ that says, no, go and sin no more. So by approving, by, you see, facilitating a wedding on her property, she actually is tripling the sin of her daughter. And now is announcing to the entire Western world that is her fans, Amy Grant, fame, announcing to them, this is what godly compassion looks like. In other words, approving sin. No. Her viewpoint is not only determining her destiny and that of her daughter, but is determining the destiny of untold thousands, perhaps millions of other people who are watching this example and saying, oh, okay, that's how you do it. So deviancy is defined downward again, just as the famous Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan once said back in the 60s, deviancy defined downward. We call that which God calls sin, we just call it a mistake. Or we call it the love of Christ that's approving it all, and we'll all come around and sing kumbaya, while the whole nation and professing Christians are going to hell in a handbasket. This is how it happens, friends. It's the misuse or abuse of words. Words count. They're important. They're more important than most of us think. And that's why the culture keeps wanting to redefine the words so that it can justify their sin. The latest, the redefining of the word woman, the redefining of the word man. Why? To justify that which God says he hates. That's the whole purpose of it. When in the 1960s, the word gay began to be used. That's why it was used. 
to minimize the nature of sin that would be held in the word homosexual or sodomy, which had been the common word to be used ever since time began, actually. The word sodomy comes from Sodom and Gomorrah. Didn't want to use that anymore because it had cultural negativity attached to it, but it had biblical approval attached to it. That is, calling it what it is. It's sodomy. It's a horrific sin against the creator God who created man, humankind in his image, male and female created he them. Compassion does not approve sin. It doesn't condone or approve. Neither does it condemn Now, there's a famous church, I think it's in Michigan, that is well known for its condemnation. We're not doing condemnation here. Not on this program. It's the love of Christ that constrains us to tell the truth. It's the truth that will make us free. Not doing a dance, a cultural dance around the truth, so that we can all sing Kumbaya and feel better for a while until the judgment day comes. No, true compassion will prepare people for the difficult times ahead. True compassion acts to bring correction, to remedy problems, and that's what we're doing today. There's a huge problem. And we're trying to help bring correction and remedy the problem so that more people do not fall into this trap including our pastors who are very prone to do this because they want to please the people are you beginning to see the bigger picture here thanks for joining us get a copy of the book uh, seduction of the saints how to stay pure in a world of deception fifteen dollars will put the eighteen dollar book in your hands I think you'll find it a life-saving, life-changing book. Oh, it's not negative. It's truly compassionate. And you'll see that. It's on our website, saveus.org. Call us 1-800-SAVE-USA. Write to us at Save America Ministries. And become a partner, friends. Here we are. Difficult times. This is the time to come on board. In Jesus' You've been name. listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.